0: You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me fix What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make it an offer. You talking to me? Straight out of the train. I don't know who you are. Why I'm so sick. When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, yes. I'm better. He's lion! Snap out of it. If they call me Mr. Boy's best Friends' mother. You have no style. You work all day, little dog. No. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I somehow ended up out every night this week like some crazy person in her 20s so I'm very tired and I'd say I'm excited for a quiet week but I'm probably doing it all again this coming week too too many July birthday friends and friendship just general friendship kept me out of the movie theaters this week save for ones for working that being said maybe you should go see Nope but you know just on to this week's topic this week For our last movie this month, we're covering the five-year saga it took to make the film Fitzcarraldo. This is going to be a very different episode from the last two, as this film was actually given very positive reviews upon its release. That is not where the chaos comes from. Despite the fact that it did very well and it's seen as a masterpiece, the abhorrent things that happened on this film is why it is included in this month, and in some ways might be the worst production of all of these, as it is the only one on which people perished. You guys... I didn't even know about this movie until I started doing research this week. Not gonna lie, I picked it off of a list online when I was trying to find like what are the like prime examples of really bad, like famously bad film sets. And it also helped that this one had a documentary to supplement the information. And it wasn't an American film. I was trying to find one that wasn't produced in the Hollywood system, so it ticked all the boxes. And my God, it did not disappoint with what I found. If Werner Herzog, the film's director, had made this film today and what had happened on this shoot happened now. There's absolutely no way in hell he'd have a career to speak of, though I'm guessing that the fact he made this outside of the Hollywood or European film industries didn't hurt. So yeah, if you're squeamish about certain things, like some crazy stuff happens in here. So without further ado, with that, let's take our places. It's showtime.
0: This church
1: remains closed. Till this town has its opera house. I want the opera house. I want my opera house. I want the opera house! This church remains closed till this town has its opera house! In the decades leading up to Fitzcarraldo... Werner Herzog had made a name for himself as a leading member of German cinema. Born in Munich, Bavaria, now Germany, in 1942, Herzog had a chaotic few early years because, well, he was born in Bavaria in the midst of World War II. But the young man would grow up and become a major member of new German cinema, primarily led by documentaries that were inspired by French New Wave that like to use regular people and actors side-by-side within their films. His first major movie was Signs of Life from 1968, which won a major prize at the Berlin Film Festival. In the decade that followed after that, Herzog became a bigger and bigger deal with each film that he made. Um, One of the ones you might mostly know from his early years is probably 1979's Nosferatu. Then came Fitzcarraldo. Herzog wrote the script himself, based on the story of a real man, a Peruvian rubber baron named Carlos Fitzcarrald, whom explored the Peruvian Amazon by steamship, and at one point forced his indigenous workers to take apart his steamship and transport it over a mountain to another river. In Herzog's adaptation of this story, the Peruvian rubber baron is turned into a headstrong Irishman obsessed with the idea of building an opera house in the Amazon, specifically in Aquitos, a large city in the Peruvian Amazon, and he buys a steamship to explore wild parts of the jungle for a possible rubber plantation to fund this dream. Not a lot is available about the pre-production or how I got the money, but one thing that is known is that before ultimately acquiring the funds for the film himself, himself, himself through a series of German investors, 20th Century Fox had actually considered financing Fitzcarraldo until Herzog told them that he wanted everything involving the steamboat to be done as a practical effect. He would not accept money from anyone who was going to try and make him do that via VFX. Well, this event did happen in real life, so it was, you know, in theory, possible. The real-life version involved hauling a 30-ton ship over a mountain in several pieces, the Steamboat Herzog ultimately purchased would be 320 tons. We'll get to that whole shit show later on. Herzog flew to Peru in November 1979 to begin on-location pre-production and set up camp just 25 miles from the Peruvian-Ecuadorian border, not far from where a war over territory was brewing. The Peruvian government was encouraging its peoples to move into the jungle, encroaching on the natives' land, of which of course they had no firm or paperwork of ownership of, because why would they? So, you know... It was basically internal colonialism, and as a result, tensions were naturally quite sky-high. Most of the reason they wanted this was so that the government could begin using the area's resources. Understandably, the natives became very untrusting of outsiders, especially once trying to lay down roots on their lands, like Herzog was doing. To combat this, he went to the local indigenous people and made a promise that he was only there to make his movie. But that doesn't mean he was automatically welcomed there. Quite the opposite, actually. A newly born tribal council built of other tribe leaders and some members of the Akwaruna tribe, where Herzog was trying to set up his camp, were wary of Herzog's presence, believing that if he brought the film back to Europe, it could bring awareness of the mistreatment of their people, and they didn't want that. As Herzog kept moving forward with pre-production, he started tapping some of the local, unhostile Aguaruna tribe to be actors and laborers on the film. He and his production manager, Walter Saxer, planned to pay the Aguaruna people $3.50 a day, which was twice the going rate of an indigenous laborer at the time. When word got out of the Aguarunas for their cooperation, or at least some of them's cooperation, the council put out a warrant for their leader, known only as Nelson in sources, arrest on the count of treason. Nelson and the production company also began receiving death threats. And if that wasn't enough, rumors began spreading within the tribal communities, likely started by the council, as to what these shady white people would do to their land and their people if they were allowed to stay. This included making a canal between two rivers, effectively making an island, and destroying the landscape. While that sounds extreme, it's probably the most minor one. Then, of course, there was the standard defiling of the womenfolk rumors, and in the local press there were stories that the production was a front for smuggling guns. There were also rumors that the production was destroying foliage while they were shooting, despite the fact that they hadn't shot a second of film yet, and also that they'd had locals arrested, which also wasn't true. Diving completely into Crazy Town, another rumor also spread that the production company wanted to slaughter the locals and take the grease out of their bodies so they could cook with it. The most messed up one came when two men from the German press or the German government, the source varies on who it was, some muckety-mucks from Germany came in and checked in on the production after claiming to have photos of a local tribe that had been allegedly killed as a result of Herzog trying to make this film. All of this information was also false, but stories in the German press began calling the production the, quote, Herzog Horror Picture Show. As a result of all of this, Herzog pulled the majority of his crew out of the jungle weeks after arriving. Not long after, on December 1st, 1979, an armed group of Aquarunas surrounded those remaining at the film camp to demand that they leave immediately. Once the crew vacated, the Aquarunas burnt the camp to the ground. Herzog would not find another location for his camp for 13 months. Filming eventually kicked off in January 1981, starting in a place called Iquitos, a river port city not far from a major airport and boasting a population of 200,000. It was also quite a bit away from the border, so further away from the drama they'd experienced a year ago. Location shooting would take place 1,500 miles away from that city. At the start of production, Jason Robards was tapped to play the titular role. Fitzcarraldo's sidekick, Wilbur, a simple-minded actor, would be played by none other than Mick Jagger. Five weeks into production, however, with 40% of the film completed, Jason Robards had to pull out of the film after he came down with a severe case of amoebic dysentery. He flew back to his native US to recover and was denied by his doctor to return to Peru to finish the film. Robarts had also hated being in the jungle, so this gave him a pretty easy out. Robarts quitting meant that Herzog was essentially back to square one, hard to shoot around your main character when the movie's named after your main character. Herzog had to find a new person to take over the role, and fast, because his financiers were starting to pull out. Herzog ended up pausing the production for six weeks so he could find his his new Fitzcarraldo. And then it got worse. Jagger dropped out shortly after Robard due to his scheduling commitments with the Rolling Stones and their next album tour. Believing that no one could replace Jagger in the part of Wilbur, Herzog opted to cut out the character altogether. At the time, Herzog called it the biggest loss in his career. To fill in the missing character, a sidekicky role became Fitzcarraldo's lover Molly, whom would eventually be played by Italian film star Claudia Cardinale. Back in Germany, Herzog had to placate his remaining investors, ensuring them that he could still finish this film. Herzog told them that it was essentially a moot point as to whether or not he could finish the film, because, quote, "...if I abandon this film, I'm a man without dreams, and I don't want to live like that." He went on to say, quote, "...I live my life, or I end my life by this project." In April 1981, Herzog's replacement for Fitzcarraldo arrived in Peru. His name was Klaus Kinski, a German actor known for his intense acting style and just volatile, and a-holishness personality. Kinski had appeared in over 150 films by this point, including Nosferatu for Herzog, in which he'd played Count Dracula. This would be his fourth film with the director, and each previous time the two had worked together, they'd had incredibly hostile, explosive fights. So you know what would make them work together better, a more, you know, healthy environment? A humid jungle on the other side of the world where the actor was going to spend a huge amount of time basically camping. Kinski was a super effed up dude on all fronts, to put it mildly. Not going to get into that. but just wanted to acknowledge it because sometimes I get a little like, hey, he's a bad person. I know. But yeah, once he arrived, shooting kicked off once more. Fitzcarraldo's steamboat in its dilapidated state used in the film was a real steamboat called the Narino, built in 1902 in Glasgow, Scotland, and ultimately used in a war against Colombia. Production found it in Colombia in an Amazonian tributary full of holes, but just functional enough to tug it up the river 350 miles in order to film on it. Now, of course, they would need a proper boat for the actual filming on the river, which involved them buying another steamboat. This one was called the Hualga, which was built around the same time as the Nariño, I believe it was 1906, and was of a similar shape and size, enough to where they could pass for one another once they fixed it up. This involved rebuilding the majority of the ship's bones as well as its motor. And then they got a third boat for the hauling the boat over a freaking hill scene because there was a risk that the second one was going to get destroyed while shooting a climactic scene in the film, which involved very treacherous water. The new river camp location was in a place called Rio Camisea and was in central Peru. It was a day's flight, then a puddle jumper flight to get there from Iquitos, and two weeks traveling by river, so very, very remote. The decision to shoot this far from civilization baffled the crew, as Herzog himself had admitted that much of the film could be shot just outside of Iquitos. They believed Herzog was making things difficult on purpose, but Herzog claimed that being in the literal middle of nowhere could pull better performances out of his cast and yield better work from his crew. You be the judge if that's what happened. Conditions also sucked for the Westerners cause, well, jungle, and they were essentially camping for six plus months. It was hot as hell during the day, freezing at night and humid as all get out. Production did provide clean showers and flush toilets and electricity thanks to a super loud generator for everybody. Oh goody. But let's be honest this was likely to prevent somebody from getting dysentery again or anybody getting too completely freaking miserable. The local Machiguenga tribe was more receptive to the shooting than the Aquarunas tribe had been so that was good. Additionally, several members from other tribes that Herzog and the crew had handpicked to be a part of the film also relocated to this area Area in order to work on the film. So there was probably like half a dozen different tribes all in this one place, which, you know, was not a thing that they did. And this would end up causing a lot of tension as filming progressed. Another problem soon made itself known, as this area of the Amazon was too shallow for a boat the size of the Hualga to sail in unless the river was flooded. Now, with their original shooting schedule, Herzog had totally planned for this, and would have been shooting during the wet season when the river would have been at its highest, but the production delays had pushed the shooting way off schedule, and the water levels were dropping fast. It was also drier than normal at that time, so Herzog had to cover the footage he needed like yesterday. Production got a lucky break when some rain rose the river for a few hours, allowing them to shoot a crucial scene, but that new engine they constructed was not strong enough, and the boat started sailing. Backwards. Also, because the water levels still weren't ideal, if they'd gotten the boat stuck, production would have been hosed for at least six months. You've learned enough this month to know that it definitely got stuck. So Herzog ended up having a fourth boat built, though this one would be lighter and more set-like, meaning not a full-ass boat, but enough that it could be cheated through the eye of the camera to look like one. Then things started getting a little scary when one of the production's guards, who was an indigenous, Person was struck in the throat by an arrow during a raid on the camp. His wife was also hit three times, as was another person, though everybody survived. The man was operated on for eight hours on a kitchen table while mosquito repellent was sprayed around him to keep the mosquitoes away from the blood. Doesn't that sound lovely? Later, someone on the production claimed this happened because the tribe had been looking for turtle eggs, but come on, no. Remember that volatile dude I mentioned earlier? Well, Kinski displayed his typical manic hostile behavior throughout the production and fought relentlessly with Herzog and other members of the crew, particularly Saxer. A scene from Herzog's documentary of the actor My Best Fiend even shows Kinski just full on raging at Saxer over like trivial things given what, where they were and what they were doing, including the quality of the food and all and like the facilities and how bored he was in front of the entire cast and crew. You're in the jungle, bro. What did you think you were signing up for? Herzog also states in the doc that the native extras did not like the way he acted on set, though Kinski would claim to feel quite close to them. Also in My Best Fiend, Herzog says that one of the native chiefs even offered to kill Kinski for him, but that he declined because he needed the actor to complete the film. Well, like I said, it had been dry early in production, six months in, it became super rainy, forcing the film to pause. By the time they got to this point, production had been there twice as long as they'd anticipated, with no end in sight. As a result, the toilets began breaking and the medical and food supply systems were falling apart as well. Also, the indigenous people were not used to living in this larger population with other members of other tribes which was leading to social tensions. Many of the men that had come there to work on the production did so without their wives and families and the production delays led to a lack of nothing to do but basically hang out and that led to low morale. They also wanted Masato, an indigenous alcoholic beverage made with yucca and human spit, which is made by the women of each tribe. They couldn't have the local Masato because that was made by another tribe, and having Masato made by another tribe was against their beliefs. The Western crew was equally bored as everyone struggled to fill their days. Tensions and anxiety were through the roof because nobody could leave because they didn't know when they were going to be able to shoot something. A super messed up anecdote is, after being advised by a local Catholic priest to keep the men from doing awful things to women in the nearby villages, the production hired local sex workers to, you know, placate the men. And there are just too many layers in this messed up sentence to get into with any level of depth. But that is a thing that also happened. A crew of indigenous workers was hired to create the path on which the ship will be pushed through in the film. The pathway needed to be about a mile long and was made over a muddy terrain which made things super difficult and scores of trees had to be cut down in order to do this. The bulldozer production used to tear down those trees used up to 150 gallons of gas per day, all of which had to be flown in on charter planes before being ferried up the river to the location. Also, the bulldozer was bought second hand and broke often, requiring pieces to be ordered from as far away as Florida. Oftentimes, the wrong part would arrive. Just the carbon footprint on that, just crazy. Laplace Martins, a Brazilian engineer, had been hired to work out the complex pulley system that in theory should slowly move the boat up and over the hill. His system would require over 60 men to operate, When considering, you know, crunching the numbers, you know, engineer style, Martins suggested a 20 degree slope be built, but Herzog wanted 40 because he liked the way it looked better. Before shooting started, the system had already failed and Martins feared that someone would get killed if it happened again. He explained to them that basically if any cable broke, it would cause a lot of stuff to be pulled down the hill behind it, including the workers operating the damn thing. When Martins brought up these concerns to Herzog and other members of the production during which time he also explained how many people could die if anything went wrong with Everything in its current form, he was met with pretty flippant attitude from Herzog. In the documentary Burden of Dreams, which covers the shooting of this film from a far more positive angle than it should have, you see Herzog seemingly quietly mulling over this information, with, in my opinion, very little concern over the lives of his indigenous crew. When nothing was done to amend the plans to make everything safer, Martins quit. When interviewed by the documentary crew on his way out, he states that he believed that the system, the way it currently, was only had a 30% chance of working properly. Now, as a reminder, this this is a real thing that happened, but the ship that this was done to was only 30 tons and was disassembled into 14 or 15 different parts before it was carried over the hill. This ship was nearly 11 times bigger at 320 tons, and Herzog planned for the boat to remain intact. Almost immediately into shooting this sequence, a humongous metal coupling snapped, sending the boat, which had maybe traveled six feet, maybe six feet, probably not even that, back into the water. What Martins had feared would happen, happened. Several workers were dragged through the torrential mud and some were moderately injured. Luckily, no one was horribly injured or died. Now... You know, with everything seemingly going to hell in a handbasket, and they had a ship stuck in a hill, another ship stuck in some dirt, and then, you know, all the other crap going on, many of the crew, especially the indigenous people, consider jumping ship, no pun intended. They wanted to get away from the crazy white man and his big ass boat. He couldn't get up the hill before somebody died. Herzog was disheartened and gives this like crazy like speech about how untamed the jungle is to the documentary crew after this happened, but soldiered on. The climactic scene in the film involves the natives releasing the boat over a waterfall to appease the river gods, with Fitzcarraldo on board in a drunken stupor. Herzog took the crew out on his other, other, other boat to shoot those scenes, while another group stayed to figure out that whole hill debacle. This was shot on very dangerous rapids, and as shooting commenced, the boat continuously violently smacked against the cliff face as they were shooting quite close to it, because the DP didn't like the way the background was going by when they were further away from it. The maniacal rocking of the boat caused Thomas Mock, the DP, to slice open his left temple about inch, inch and a half, and also injure his right hand, like completely sliced open his right hand. The fall he took was so bad, the lens like catapulted off of the camera. Herzog and Kinski were the ones that bandaged him up. Herzog claimed in a later interview that they had a medic, but he was clearly not there that day, which is a big no-no. Then they got that boat stuck and were forced to wait for the rainy seasons to be able to retrieve it again. It would take months as the region was still facing a drought. It would also take several more months and another engineering crew from nearby Lima, but Herzog eventually got the ship over the mountain. The final shot of Fitzcarraldo was captured on November 1981, four years after the start of pre-production, and ten months after filming had commenced. Now, a lot of this information came from the aforementioned Burden of Dreams, a 1982 documentary that covered the filming, but it left out a lot of the bad shit that happened, including quite a bit of the stuff I mentioned about Kinski. Again, a major difference between this film and the last three we've covered this month is that nobody died as a result of anything that happened on the first three productions. The same cannot be said here. So here's just some of the horrible things that befell members of the crew during shooting. Well... As I mentioned, there were several deaths. One person died in a plane crash, likely bringing supplies to the camp. You know, the one Herzog stubbornly made a thousand miles from civilization. Five others on that flight were critically injured, and one of them was permanently paralyzed. One source said there were two separate plane crashes, but I couldn't definitively verify that. Several local people also died of disease during the film's productions that lived in the camp. But, you know, that one's kind of a tricky one because it might have been... A lot more of them had it not been for the on-site medic. That could have just been a hazard of living where they lived. Also, likely bored out of his mind, a young native boy working on the production drowned after taking one of the film's canoes out for a joyride. An indigenous logger was bitten by a snake and chainsawed off his own foot to prevent the spread of the venom. Herzog called all of this the price you pay to make a movie, which is some pretentious bullshit if I've ever heard it. Fitzcarraldo released in Germany on March 5th, 1982, to great acclaim. When it released stateside, film critic Roger Ebert called it, quote, brave and epic. The film was nominated at the BAFTAs and Golden Globes for Best Foreign Film and was nominated for the Palme d'Or. Herzog won Best Director at the Cannes Film Festival for Fitzcarraldo in 1982. Fitzcarraldo was selected as the West German entry for Best Foreign Film for the Oscars that year, but was not ultimately nominated. To this day, Fitzcarraldo is seen as one of Herzog's best films, even after he began referring to himself as, quote, conquistador of the useless when referencing himself on this production. And while the visuals are stunning, and yes, the depiction of accurate natives is impressive and unseen outside of documentaries, at what cost did Herzog make this film to the native peoples? It's definitely an elephant in the room situation, which you've probably been picking up on as this episode has gone on. Yes, production gave them very good employment, but they exploited the fact that they could get non-experts for free, or next to free, for, you know, peanuts, and that caused a lot of accidents. Also, they tore up the social norms of these tribes, the homeostasis that they had had for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and they'd been through enough shit thanks to colonialism. This was not what they needed, and the tensions between them are evident throughout Burden of Dreams, and very much glazed over. At one point in the documentary, Herzog low-key boasts that this will likely be one of the last films to feature Native people in their true form, the irony being that their mere presence there jacked a lot of that up. Also, there is no way, had this film been shot in the US or in Europe, would any of the shit this crew did fly, even in the late 70s, early 80s. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Yes, it's an art form, but there is no such thing as an acceptable amount of deaths or injuries when it comes to shooting a movie. At the end of the day, it is a movie, and I love movies more than like... 99% of the world, and it's just not acceptable. The fact that all of these things happened and that the film is still revered is more than a little messed up. Yes, the movie is unique. I've never seen anything quite like it, but I watched it after learning all of this, and this could have been shot a lot of safer places than what they chose, and that's a hard fact to ignore. At the end of the day, much of what went wrong during this film was a result of sheer hubris. At the end of the day, when talking about Fitzcarraldo, we have to ask ourselves, what is the filmmaker's moral responsibility when they enter a community untouched by Western civilization versus how they leave it? Are there places and peoples that should never be viewed through a lens? Whatever the case, Fitzcarraldo stands as an example of what happens when a film crew goes seemingly too far.
0: Of course we are challenging nature itself, and it hits back, it just hits back, that's all, and that's grandiose about it, and we have to to accept that it is much stronger than we are. Kinski always says it's full of erotic elements. I don't see it so much erotic, I see it more full of obscenity. It's just, and nature here is vile and base. I wouldn't see. anything erotical here, I would see fornication and asphyxiation and choking and fighting for survival and growing and just rotting away. Of course there is a lot of misery, but it is the same misery that is all around us. The trees here are in misery and The birds are in misery. I don't think they they sing, they just screech in pain.
1: And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you'd please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be an amazing help. And in order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help out in any way, I would very much appreciate it. I've also got to Buy Me a Coffee We're just buy me a coffee so i can stay up late and write all these scripts i've also got merch check it out at the link in the show notes it's a five sunday month so no new episode next week but the week after that we're heading to europe where we'll learn all about four different countries film histories thanks again for listening and until next time that's a wrap